Good evening. It's good to be with you. Um, I get to be here this evening and then uh, again next week because uh, what this is, whether you know it or not, you are uh, now entering into right now uh, officially the beginning of a week-long uh, conversation and um, and discipleship moment in the life of our community uh, through this conference. Here now is the first talk of the conference. To whet your appetite. What I want to do tonight is just set the theme by talking foundational. What I'm calling refocus on the family. Genesis 2, 18-25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground... Uh, out of the ground the Lord had, had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib, and, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The word of the Lord. Our God, we, we need your help here as we enter in, not just into this sermon, but this whole week-long discipleship journey together. We need your help, God, uh, because this, this reality of, of marriage and family and parenting and singleness and... All of the pain that comes with it, all of the longings that come with it, all of the struggles that come with it, uh, Lord, we need your help. Uh, for some, this topic stings because they feel like it doesn't apply to them, and they want it to apply to them. For some, this topic stings because it does apply to them, and they're really, really, really struggling with it. Um, there are those like myself who... Uh, struggle to do marriage well, who fail as a father and a parent. Uh, Lord, we all need help, no matter where our story is. And so, in humility, with teachability, we approach your word now, not just tonight, but this week, and ask, O oh Spirit, that we would be different, that we would be changed, because we came to church tonight. And because we committed this week to joining a conversation that needs to happen in our world. Lord, it is not just outside of these walls where family is broken. Lord, it's broken here. And we have to have the courage to admit that and seek help. So we do that now, asking Spirit that you would join us. In your name, O Christ, we pray. Amen. In... Uh, 1977, um, psychologist and evangelical Christian named James Dobson 
most of you know James Dobson, particularly if you're um, if you've been doing Christianity for a while. The older among us founded uh, the organization focused on the family. Uh, the philosophy behind it was and is a very good one that God has ordained the family as the foundational institution of civilization. As the family goes, so goes the culture. And that's true. Historians will tell you that. James Dobson has been saying that for decades now. And so because of this, it is right to give the family institution singular focus. It is right to focus on the family. And so what began was not just an organization, but an entire focus on the family movement. During the 80s and 90s, this philosophy dominated evangelical thought. Uh, the New York Times labeled James Dobson the most influential evangelical leader and focus on the family, the most influential evangelical organization. It is safe to say that at least in the evangelical, conservative evangelical world, that over the past few decades, family has been a focus. Um, we, have, we have successfully focused on the family um, in evangelical Christianity. I'm going to argue next week we may have focused too much. But we have focused on the family. And there has been a recapturing of the primacy, the significance, the centrality of family to God's design. And yet, here we are 40 years later, on the heels of the Focus on the Family movement, bewildered and asking what has become of our families. Marriage has officially been redefined by the highest court of our nation, uh, the crowning achievement of a very aggressive effort to redefine sexual ethics. Um, and the family institution as a whole. Divorce rates are now officially over 50%. We, we, we're, we're past 50% now. And that's just those who even give this archaic marriage thing a try. Um, increasingly, the idea is being rejected altogether, preferring instead the low cost, low commitment of cohabitation. Um, internet pornography is an aggressively malignant cancer that has invasively spread to nearly every home in our nation. Singles, uh, the unmarried, inhabit a uh, dating culture marked at best by casual hookups, at worst by sexual assault, as we are painfully seeing more and more as that, as that darkness is being revealed as it should. And perhaps most indicting of all, we have to acknowledge, we have to have the humility to acknowledge that the rising generation, the very ones parented by the focus on the family parents, the very ones who grew up within the focus on the family generation are rejecting not just the Bible's family values, but the Bible itself. And a tragic twist of irony the children raised by focus on the family parents are at alarming rates renouncing the faith of their parents. Something's wrong. Something's off. Um, we still need help. We have focused on the family and we still don't get it. 
What this means is I think we might need fresh help, a new set of eyes, maybe even critique the way in which we have come at this issue and ask again, what does this look like? Fresh help, help that fits the cultural context of our day with its unique challenges. We need what I'm calling a refocus on the family, a reimagining of what the Bible teaches about family and how to do family that fits where we are today. That is why we are hosting a conference on this topic. Tonight we begin the discussion by returning to the inception of family. We turn to Genesis 2 and the original creation of family by the Creator Himself. And what we are going to see here are two things. The family as the culmination of creation and also the devastation of creation. Now I'm going to spend a lot of time on the first point, so I'm telling you that up front. And the first point will be the foundational. Um, I'm going to lift up heaven's design and vision for family as a culmination of creation. And then I'm going to introduce the devastation of family. But that is going to lead us into application that will be the rest of this conference. So a lot of time here on what is family as the culmination of creation and then what's your appetite for what is to come. If, um, if, you're not, if, you, if, if you would not consider yourself a Christian, um, I, I, would give ear to, I would give ear to this first point for this reason. Um, because I think the church has done a, probably a pretty good job of making you aware of what we believe family is not, what marriage is not. But I think we have failed to lift high the beauty of the Christian vision of, of marriage and family. Um, and so I'm going to try my best to help you understand the deeply mysterious, complex understanding of how God designed this to be. And I would say um, to those of you, um, it's interesting preaching this message this morning and here tonight as I look out and see so many young faces. This morning I felt like I was dealing with a lot of regrets. Um, I had a lot of people come through after the sermon. Um, Tears in their eyes. I'm excited about the conference, but only because um, they were looking for ways that they can go back and maybe apologize <laughs> um, for doing it wrongly. Um, a lot of regrets. Um, I, I think one of the beautiful things about tonight is I, I have before me um, unbridled uh, future uh, potential of what could be. And um, some of you are newly married, some of you are engaged to be married, some of you are dreaming of being married, uh, some of you are struggling being unmarried, but regardless, so many of you have it all before you. And so you too, listen here. I wish somebody um, in my early years would say, this is what God thinks about marriage, family, parenting, so forth. So wherever you're coming from, let's spend just a little bit of time here looking at, at, at what marriage is, or the culmination of creation, and then what has become the, de the uh, devastation creation. Okay, uh, you probably already know, if you're familiar with the story, that creation culminates with God creating man, this unique creature after his own image. But what is interesting about the formation of man is that God breaks from his celebratory routine. Every time God creates, if you know the creation narrative, every time God creates, he celebrates. He appreciates what he has made. The specific refrain is, God saw that it was good. So he, he makes something and he says, wow, that's good. Well, after creating man, 
ironically, the most special creature of creation in his own image and likeness. Look what it says in verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good. Isn't that interesting? Everything else he has created, he saw that it was good. But upon the creation of his own image, he says, this isn't good. But this is only because his image is not yet complete. What's not good? What is it that is incomplete? It says, it is not good that man should be alone. You see, God is a triune God. One of the implications of the Trinity is that at the center of all reality is relational love. That that is at the center of eternal existence is relationship and love. So man is not truly God's image. Man cannot be truly God's image while man is alone. Which is why God says that man's solitude is not good. And that he will have to create a helper fit for him. The term helper may come across as demeaning or maybe even pejorative in the English language. Um, don't let that be. In the Hebrew, this is a very noble word. Um, in fact, the other times it is used in Scripture, it describes God who is our helper. So, ladies, if that verse has always rubbed you the wrong way, don't let it be. This is, this is helper in the sense of God is my helper. God is the one I desperately need. And so this is the sense here. Man is incomplete and in desperate need of this helper. And not just any helper. A helper, it says, that is fit for him. Verses 19 through 20 are there to add desperation to Adam's isolation is what's going on there. It's, it's, it's him encountering far and wide all of creation, desperately searching for his helper, his compliment, his companion. And there's none to be found. And you can feel his desperation. It says, Out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of heaven, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to all the birds of the heaven, and to every beast of the field. But for him, for Adam, there was nothing to be found. There was no helper fit for him. The picture is Adam just scouring creation for a helper. But no beast of the field or bird of the air is suitable. So it says, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Finally, Adam says, finally, someone like me. Finally, one who fits me. Finally, one who gets me, who compliments me. Indeed, was made for me and I for her. Finally, literally, a piece of me. So what are they to do? He is found what he so desperately is looking for, but what does he do with what he has found? What are man and woman to do with one another? In other words, is this just a procreation thing? Finally, humans can now breed like other animals? No, that, that doesn't do justice to Adam's words, does it? This is much more than finally I've found someone I can breed with. This is, well, th this is love. Something 
The beasts of the field and birds of the air were not given and cannot comprehend. But something new has arisen in creation. Something has utterly seized God's image bearers. For the first time, love has awakened. And it leads into something very profound. Verse 24 is famous. You know the words. But we often neglect that it starts with a therefore. Which means it's actually an application of the previous verse. What is the application of love, in other words? What is the application of this mysterious rapture that, that has sprung up and overwhelmed Adam and Eve? What does it compel them to do? To get married. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What a strange thing we humans do. We don't just mate, we hold fast to a mate. We cling in a, in a covenantal way to another. And it's, it's not just utilitarian survival of the species mating that we do. And no, the way our act is described is the two become one flesh. Eve was taken from Adam so that the sexual act is described as becoming one again. That is to say, Adam was literally made for Eve, and Eve was literally made for Adam. And when they unite together in sexual intimacy, they actually become whole. They're actually one. And the point in all of this is that something totally unique has happened within God's creation. Something mysterious. Something heightened. Something that when you look at the creation narrative as a whole is to be viewed as the high point, the very culmination of all of creation. Creation displays the glory of the Creator. The highest display is not just found in the creation of image bearers of the Creator, but more specifically, two image bearers becoming one flesh within the covenant of marriage. This is the closest you get to the image of God. A mentor of mine in the ministry, Joe Novitzen, says that the ecstasy of sexual intimacy within the safe confines of the marital covenant, specifically, and I'll just go there, specifically that rapturous moment of sexual climax is the closest creation gets to experiencing the euphoric delight that has forever existed within the Trinity. The closest man ever gets to God is that. Sexual intimacy within the safety of the marriage covenant. But even now, we're not quite done with the culmination of creation. What did the rapturous love of the Trinity produce? Creation. God did not create because He is incomplete and needed to create. He was lonely. He needed companionship. He needed someone to fulfill him or something like that. God has ever, forever been complete. He has forever been content within the love of the Trinity. Instead, what creation is, is a spilling over of love. The expression and the reproduction of love that others might be invited to share in the love of God. And now I ask you, 
what is the ultimate outcome of the two becoming one flesh? If sexual intimacy within the covenant of marriage is the closest creation gets to the delight of the Trinity, then is there likewise a spilling over of marital love that others might be invited to share in the love of the marriage covenant? What does two becoming one flesh create? Offsprings of marital love. The mysterious reproducing of God's image. New image bearers out of the one flesh. The culmination of creation is not just image bearers. The culmination of creation is not just image bearers together as one. The culmination of creation is the family. The closest thing we get to all of creation, in all of creation, to the story of God and His creation is the family. And we know that Genesis has family in mind and not just marriage here. You've heard this text preached before and typically it would only apply to the married ones in this room. And I'm trying to say it applies to all of us because it speaks of the profound mystery of the family. And we know that Genesis has family and not just marriage in mind here because it speaks of marriage in generational terms. Would it not make more sense and perhaps even flow better to the story if father and mother part were left out of verse 24. Therefore a man shall cling to his wife and the two will become flesh. That seems to make more sense, especially because Adam and Eve have not father and mother. But instead it says that a man shall leave father and mother and cleave to his wife, which means verse 24 has more in mind than just marriage and sex. It is talking about the formation of family. A new family. Therefore, summing it all up, the culmination of creation is this special creature created in the image of God, but more specifically the marriage of the image of God, but more specifically the spilling over of marriage into offspring invited to share in that love. The culmination of creation is family, which means this speaks to all of us. I know it speaks to none of us in this idealistic perfect way, it speaks to us in broken ways that we're going to get to. But this speaks to all of us. And because family is the culmination of creation, it is likewise the foundation of all creation. Do you remember God's original command to His image bearers? He says this, be fruitful and multiply. But now we see that fruitful multiplication takes place not just by making a bunch of offsprings like animals do, but by leaving father and mother and clinging to a spouse in marriage and the two becoming one flesh, which then overflows into the reproduction of more image bearers included by birth within the family, within the safe confines of marital love. God doesn't want creation filled with a mass of disconnected individuals. That's the animal kingdom. He wants the reproduction of families, which is why the story is told through the narrative of generations. Creation is not filled with people. Creation is filled with generations. That's the way the Bible views it. And the plan was perfect. Perfect. And it would have worked perfectly. Look at the concluding verse 25. 
and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Notice it doesn't say the man and, his, and the woman. It says the man and his wife. They're married now. They were both naked and were not ashamed. The picture is innocence, right? They were naked. That's, that means they are fully known. They are fully known and have nothing to be ashamed of. And were they continue to continue in their state of innocence, creation would be filled with family of innocence. A world with nothing to be ashamed of. But that's not what we have become, is it? We have dealt thus far exclusively with God's design. But unfortunately, not one person here has ever experienced what I just described. So we need to talk family in our reality. Now, again, this will be much shorter because the first point is in some ways my basis, idealistic hope, so to speak. But the second point is our reality and will become the entire conference. Let's briefly set the stage for the rest of the week by looking at the devastation of creation. Family was the culmination, but it has become the devastation. Again, chapter 2 ends with, The man and his wife are both naked and were not ashamed. But those idyllic words now only haunt the memories and longings of image bearers. They only exist as echoes of what once was and should have been because chapter 2's perfection gives way to chapter 3's devastation. Seven verses later. Seven verses later, the eyes of humanity are open. They see what they are and what they have become, and they are ashamed of what they have become. And they are hiding from their Creator in fear. Seven verses, and it's undone. And then Adam and Eve bear sons, and the first family on earth murders itself. One generation into the story, and they are burying each other in shallow graves. The culmination of creation has turned into the devastation of creation. As families and generations spread, they leave paths of ruin and misery. You see, the power of God's design cannot be denied, and that's why its misuse is so destructive. That's the problem, is the way God ordained it to be is. The family is this powerful. The family is this significant. This fa the family is this formative. You can't deny that. And when family is done well, that's great. When sinners do family, it's devastating. In other words, marriage is a sacred covenant, whether we recognize it or not. It is what it is. It can be trivialized by our world. It can be just a piece of paper that's meaningless by our world. It doesn't matter. It is what it is. It is sacred and it is powerful, which is why divorce and its legacy is so destructive. And I'm a child of divorce. That's why it's so painful and so destructive. That's why your spouse can hurt you in ways that nobody else can hurt you. Because it is that powerful. Marriage is that real. That's why when image bearers have sex, 
The two are becoming one flesh, whether we recognize it or not, whether the hookup culture tells you it's just a casual thing or not. No lady feels that way the morning after. It is what it is. It is that powerful. It is the two becoming one flesh. That's why Paul says to the Corinthians, stop sleeping with prostitutes. You're becoming one with them. It's working. Sex is that powerful. Which is why sex outside of marriage is tearing our culture apart. The power of father and mother over children of their family cannot be denied. It is what it is. Covenant theology will work whether we recognize it or not. You are in so many ways owned by your parents and who they are and how they raised you. You cannot escape the power. John Wall, I don't know if you saw John Wall's letter to his dad, who he barely knew, and just this enormous weight that his father, who spent most of his life in prison, and then died as soon as he got out of prison, is holding in his... It's, it's, John Wall has the whole world, and yet he's worried still about his dad. The power of parents cannot be denied. Covenant theology works, but now that power has become such a destructive force. When we were perfect in the way God designed the generations of covenant theology, it was glorious. Raising them, discipling them, bringing them up in the innocence and righteousness of God. But now we are not formed by generational love. We are formed by generational sins. This is why singles... I'm going, obviously, I'm going to have a lot to say to you this week. But, but I'll say this. When you look at this theology of family as the culmination and now devastation of creation, um, here's what I'd say. You're not single. There's no such thing as single. You may be unwed. You may have yet left father and mother to cling to another and start a new story. But there are no singles in God's design. You're a part of a story. You may not want to be a part of the story that you're a part of, but you're a part of a story. You are a generation. You are a convergence, not just of your parents' DNA, but their sin and shame. You are not this autonomous little individual out here in the world trying to survive. You are a part of the generations. And that has huge implications about you and your life and the way you do life. Do you see what I'm saying? The power of the original design cannot be denied, but sin is like a virus to the design so that now family is destroying creation rather than blessing creation, and we are its victims. What are we to do? Well, if the power of the design remains, then what would happen if the design were redeemed? The family is the most destructive force in all creation, but it could likewise be the most redemptive force as well. You want to change the world? Change the families of the world. You want to change this community? Change the families of this community. You want to change this church? Change the families of this church. Think generations, not individuals. And this is why the focus on the family movement was a noble goal and a powerful strategy. If the family is this powerful, then let's focus there on the family. But as I said before, it didn't seem to work, did it? In fact, one could argue it was actually counterproductive 
in many ways. How is it that an era of Christianity focused on the family yielded arguably the most rapid downfall of family the society has ever seen? Well, I think there's a fundamental flaw to the focus on the family philosophy as a movement. This is, I'm not, I'm not, I'm off like just James Dobson and the organizational stuff. I'm talking about just the movement that it created within evangelicalism. I think there's a fun, actually I think there's two. One I'm going to talk about next week, but tonight. I think there's a fundamental flaw to the whole thing, and it's this. Whose family? Which family am I to be focusing on? Now here's why I say that. Because focus on the family became obsessed with the families of the culture and turned into a socially conservative political action group promoting policies that reflect biblical family values. That wasn't me. That was their website. Okay. I'm not saying there isn't need for that. It's great. Legislation, great, great. Do your thing, social conservatives. But... It has to start in our homes. Focus on the family. That has to start with the Cunninghams. My home. My family. Far more powerful than family legislation and policy is the actual witness of the family. And this is where we have failed, friends. So many Christians obsessing over the world's redefinition of family while failing to practice God's definition of family. It's one thing to hold biblical convictions. Thank you for those. It's one thing to be able to defend them. That's great. But it's another thing to live out those convictions. Brothers and sisters, our doctrine, our convictions, our principles might be in order, but our families are a mess. And the latter will always negate the former. So would you do this? Would you, for a week, take this incredibly powerful thing, this thing that has the potential to be the culmination or the devastation of creation, would you, for a week, commit to joining together in this conversation and getting help? Would you come to our conference this week? That's my one and only application because the conference is my application. <laughs> we have put together a very thoughtful thing for you. A lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of prayer. Please, for a week, let us stop obsessing and fretting over the family, the failure of family and our culture of the future and what's going to happen and what's going on. Let's, let's stop obsessing there and actually look at the failures of our families. Let us repent before we call the world to repentance. We have designed this week to speak to you no matter where you are. I'm trying to have this, uh, the family as a broad category that we all fit into in some ways. So we will, we will speak to you where you are. Please register and join us. Now, I, I need to wrap up here. Let me, let me do it though first with hope. Right, we need to, let's close with hope and, and lead us to the table here because I think all of us need it. Um, we've made a mess of family and therefore family has made a mess of creation. We, we've ruined it. Okay. Right after the fall of the world, God promises to fix the world. Right after Genesis 3, 1 through 14 comes Genesis 3, 15. What's interesting about the promise is that he would do so through the seed 
of the woman. He will not, like an angel from heaven, show up and fix the world. Instead, he will redeem what the generations of the earth have laid waste by himself being born into the generations. He will redeem the families of the earth by joining the families of the earth. He will take this incredibly powerful, ordained institution that was supposed to be the glory of creation, but has become the ruin of creation, and he will enter into family and from the inside out save the world. And that's what he did. Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Man. He is fully human and fully divine, fully in every sense, which this is, what, what, this is what's unique about Jesus. This is what makes him so special as our Redeemer. He is a member, a full member of two families, the Trinity and humanity. And this is the promise to us. By faith in Jesus, our Redeemer, we the victims and villains of family's destruction, we are invited to become members, it says, of the household of God. He became man so that we can become sons and daughters of God. Literally, not figuratively, literally adopted as sons and daughters of God. Literally, not figuratively, literally full members with full rights going as far as calling us co-heirs with Jesus Christ. What does it look like to inherit the riches of the Trinity? I don't know, but you're going to find out. So leave it to God to redeem the mess we made of his plan for family by turning it into this even greater family. Turning the whole thing on its head and said, fine, I'm just going to create a global family of my own with God as our Father and Christ as our brother. Let me thank him. Lord, thank you that no matter where we come from in the devastation and ruin of family, we can be called sons and daughters of the Most High. We have full access into the Trinity's love. Rights as members of the household of God. In my Father's house there are many rooms and I have prepared a place for you, you said to us, Jesus. I pray that the good news of the family of God would transform the way we do family. I pray that this week, God, there would be revival not defined by mountaintop experiences, but by low, deep repentance in our marriages, in our parenting, in who we are as children and honoring our, our fathers and mothers and repenting of generational sins that have for so long destroyed our families, in our singleness, Lord, wherever we are, I pray that we would in humility enter into this discussion and repent and turn to you, our Father, through our brother Jesus, we pray. Amen.